This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa and are on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. My name is Spumelele Zondi and I'm with Amanda Machaka, Wisani Matebula and Figile Lengwati. Your top stories on Africa Digest this hour. Member states of the Lake Chad Basin Commission agreed to deploy a force to combat Boko Haram. Tributes pour in following the death of celebrated South African author Andre Brink. In economics, South African economist Davi Ruud says the solution to the current power crisis is to hike the electricity price. And in sport, Egypt is mourning the death of football fans. Amanda's in the studio with your news. Good evening. Fighters from Nigeria's Islamic militant group Boko Haram have attacked a town across the border in Niger for the third time in several days. The renewed violence comes as legislators in Niger prepare to vote on a plan to send troops to a regional force seeking to dismantle the Islamic extremists. At least 10,000 civilians have been killed over the past year in attacks by Boko Haram. The group last year abducted more than 200 Nigerian schoolgirls who remain missing. Nigeria's neighbors, Cameroon, Niger, Chad and Benin, all have pledged to send military help and in response, Boko Haram has threatened to attack those who aid the effort. While parts of North America are experiencing the worst measles outbreak in 15 years, a new report has documented how Africa has increased immunization rates significantly, making the continent a world leader in protecting children against the highly contagious infection. This is the crux of the new report by Good Governance Africa, a research and advocacy organization. The 2015 Africa Survey is a comprehensive annual collection of social, political and economic indicators for the continent's 55 countries compiled from a wide range of sources. Research at Good Governance Africa, Kate van Niekerk, unpacks the contents of the survey. Well, the survey is basically a huge compilation. It's about 700 pages of statistics on every kind of political, economic, social indicator that you can think of in Africa. It's basically a big book of statistics by which we can, in some ways, compare government performance across the different countries in Africa, so health, education, politics and governance. And the idea is that we have all these numbers that we can compare firstly over a period of time. Lesotho Prime Minister Tom Tabane is on his way to South Africa's capital, Pretoria, for urgent talks with the country's president, Jacob Zuma. Zuma is to mediate in talks between Tabane and leaders of coalition partners. Zuma is taking over the mediation role after his deputy, Cyril Ramaphosa, cancelled a trip to the Mountain Kingdom last week amid negative sentiments towards him. Ramaphosa had mediated a deal to end a political stalemate in Lesotho. Last week, shooting erupted again between military factions in Maseru, killing a security guard. 
It's been confirmed that South Africa will host the African Union Media Summit in June. The gathering will review progress made in the implementation of the organization's roadmap that places gender equality and equity at the center of the continent's social and economic development. South Africa's International Relations Minister Maite Nguanemashabane says cultural and religious stereotypes continue to hamper efforts to allow women to realize their full potential. And finally, three South African films have been selected to screen and compete at the 23rd Annual Pan-African Film Festival, currently underway in Los Angeles in the U.S. There are Four Corners, Hear Me Move and Cold Harbor. Four Corners has been nominated for Best Narrative Feature, while Cold Harbor has been selected for Best First Feature Narrative. Hear Me Move has been scheduled to screen tonight and is a production by the youth of South Africa who tell and write their own stories and history. Channel Africa News. Member states of the Lake Chad Basin Commission, LCBC, have agreed to deploy a 8,750-strong force next month to combat the Nigerian militant group Boko Haram in all its strongholds. The member states has closed their plans last Saturday after an experts meeting in Cameroon's capital, Yaoundé. The headquarters of the Joint Task Force will be in the Chadian capital, Jamena. Channel Africa's Amoki Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. Colonel Mahaman Suli of the Armed Forces of Niger, who reads the final communique of the experts' meeting, says Chad and Nigeria agreed to contribute 3,500 troops each, while Cameroon and Niger will contribute 750 each. Benin will be contributing 250 for now. The additional 1,250 forces from the 7,500 announced by the African heads of state during their last week's African Union meeting in Ethiopia will be a police force and civilians to attend to the growing humanitarian needs of the hundreds of thousands of people displaced as a result of the Boko Haram insurgency, especially in Cameroon and Nigeria, the two most affected countries. Colonel Eya Adeboya, who represents Nigeria as military advisor at the African Union, says the member states of the Lake Chad Basin Commission, who are the most affected, took strong commitments to eradicate Boko Haram as quickly as possible. He says one of the strong resolutions was that the head of the forces will be a Nigerian for the time being. All the Lake Chad Basin Commission member states and Benin coming under the already existing multinational joint task force, which is now being restrengthened, repositioned, and is going to have a central command and control, of which the first commander, which is on a rotational basis, will begin with Nigeria, will have effective command and control over all the forces that will be contributed by the Lake Chad Basin Commission member states and Benin into one multinational joint task force. There will be 
cooperation within the Lake Chad Basin Commission member states across her boundaries within the designated area of operation. Colonel Eya Adeboya says they have also agreed that the forces will be deployed to Boko Haram strongholds in less than two weeks from now. We have uh, given ourselves timeline and we hope that by the end of March it has become effective. However, you must bear in mind that while this meeting is going on, bilateral agreements have enabled our member states of the Lake Chad Basin Commission to fight Boko Haram as we speak. And it has afforded even cross-border operations between Nigeria, Chad, Chad, Cameroon, Cameroon, Chad, Cameroon, Nigeria. So that is ongoing. Colonel Maman Suli, who represented Niger, says the troops they will deploy will join Cameroon, Nigerian and Chadian forces that are already attacking Boko Haram locations in Nigeria's Bono State. Maybe you don't know that some troops are already at work. Each state of the Lake Chad Basin Commission already has at least 700 ready troops. We want to pave the way for them to have the mandate to leave their national territories. The forces are already there, ready to fight Boko Haram, he says. La force existe. Il y a un embryon de force sur le terrain qui travaille, qui se bat contre Boko Haram. Representatives from the countries said they need at least four million U.S. dollars and urgently too to be able to deploy the troops but will count on the resources of affected countries and well-wishers to be able to permit the forces to start fighting Boko Haram while waiting for the United Nations to intervene. Jacqueline Sek-Tuf, who represented the United Nations at the talks in Cameroon, however said the UN had promised logistical support for now, but added that the AU was requesting funding. Further assistance would need to be approved by the UN Security Council and Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, she said. Cameroonian-born Colonel Adek Moise, who represents his country at the African Union, says they intend to get the money from funding partners when the United Nations should have given its legal backing to the forces. We've come out with the rules of engagement. That's the basic things that our international partners want to know. Are we going to respect the rule of law? Are we going to respect the humanitarian law? Are we going to carry out our military operations in conformity with the law of armed conflict? Those are the very basic things that would probably open the doors for us to have the international support. Adek Moise asked that during the meeting, they also agreed that the forces will be given the mandate to attack Boko Haram in any country with no exception. The issue of hot pursuit has been addressed in the sense that it's a transborder operation with a single command where there is going to be a first commander with the subsidiary supporting structures that will carry out the mission. The multinational joint task force will be headquartered in the Chadian capital, Njamena. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzika in Yaoundé.
South African economist Savi Reward says the solution to the current power crisis in the Southern African nation is to hike the electricity prices. This comes as South Africa's power utility, ESCOM, has been struggling to generate enough power to meet the demand. South Africans have, for six consecutive days, experienced power cuts as ESCOM struggles with a series of problems, including unplanned outages due to technical faults, among others. ESCOM has also shut a 930-megawatt unit at its Kuberg nuclear power station in the Western Cape province for three months to perform regular maintenance, Ruud explains. I think there are a number of ways to try to calculate what the effective or what the impact of a lack of electricity is on the South African economy. Now, I've calculated that we've already paid a huge price by way of lost economic growth in the past. But I think it's important to realize that once the lights go off, once we experience these blackouts, then the damage has been done to the economy already. Because by then, ESCOM has already contacted the major big clients to get them to use less electricity. And they've already started up the emergency generation capacity. So it's important to realize and to note that we don't need to wait for an actual blackout, for the lights actually to go off before the damage is done. The damage has been done before that. But there's another impact to the economy that is just about impossible to measure, and that's the loss of confidence in the South African economy. Now, we do know, for instance, that foreigners are a little bit careful to invest in South Africa. We can see that, for instance, in a weaker currency. But it's impossible to calculate what the psychological and the loss of trust in the South African economy is, and therefore it's impossible to calculate how much investment we've lost and therefore how much future economic growth we've lost as well. So I think suffice to say that the the impact of ESCOM on the economy is huge, while there is also a huge impact on the trust in the South African economy, but that is totally impossible to really calculate what these impacts are. And ESCOM seems to be struggling with its finances now. Do you think that the power utility should sell its assets to become a private-owned entity? All South Africans, important to realize two facts. One is that currently the demand for electricity far outstrips the supply of electricity. Now, the rules applying to electricity are exactly the same rules that applies to things like bread or beer or any other thing. And the answer to the electricity questions are exactly the same as for any other product. I think a first step, and I know this is going to be very painful, and I know people are probably going to disagree with me, but as a first step, we need to get a supply and demand closer to each other. And the easiest way of doing that in the short term is by increasing the price of electricity. A number of things will be achieved. First of all is that people will cut back on their demand for electricity, which will bring it closer to their current existing supply of electricity. Secondly, it will give ESCOM an additional flow of funds, which they very dearly need at the moment. And of course, it will impact on the economy. It will lead to inflationary pressures and the like, but we are already paying a huge price for a lack of electricity. For example, there will be, again, by the Minister of Finance, a huge transfer to ESCOM, and that is money coming from the pockets of taxpayers. So we are already paying for that. So it will make sense rather to put it at the right place, the price increase, and that will be to increase electricity prices. But that is only a first step. From then on, we need to get market forces to determine the correct value for the correct price of electricity. We need market discipline for the industry. At the moment, we've got a monopoly in a by way of ESCOM, and all monopolies, especially monopolies that are run by politicians, are badly run. 
So we need the discipline, we need a better run electricity industry, and that means that we have to break ESCOM into smaller pieces, and we must privatize ESCOM, and we must get private sector participation in electricity generation and distribution in South Africa. So I'm afraid the answers are not easy ones. To increase electricity prices is one of them, certainly, but after that we need to break ESCOM into smaller parts, sell it off to the private sector and get more private sector participation. And the power utility has said this will take long, the maintenance that has to take place. So load shedding is here for the next maybe 10 to 15 years. Now, should the South African nation start counting its losses? Already the losses have started, but should it start counting its losses for the next coming 10 to 15 years? I disagree with ESCOM that it's going to take 10 to 15 years before we can rectify the shortage of electricity. In fact, I believe that we can have sufficient electricity in South Africa within a matter of less than five years if we get proper private sector participation. So we can get enough electricity without a doubt. The cost to the South African economy is enormous already. I've calculated that the South African economy today would have been more than 10% larger than what it actually is if we had sufficient electricity since 2008. If you put that into money terms, it's more than 300 billion rand annually. If you put that into lost job opportunities, it's more than a million jobs that we could have had that we do not have because we don't have enough electricity. And I'm afraid if something goes wrong this year and things seem to be going wrong all the time with electricity provision in South Africa, then I'm afraid the potential impact on the economy can be even in a bad case scenario that the economy dipped into a session. In other words, that the economy actually shrinks in 2015 because of the lack of electricity. So without a doubt, we must be counting the cost to the economy, and I think this is really a crisis situation that needs all of our attention, and we need to try to address this issue as soon as absolutely possible because the cost to the economy is absolutely horrendous. That is David Ward, Chief Economist at the South African financial firm Econometrics, on the line to Tuto Ngobeni. It's 17.17 Central African Time, right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest with Ms. Pumela Lezondi. Now, while parts of North America are experiencing the worst measles outbreak in 15 years, a new report has documented how Africa has increased immunization rates significantly, making the continent a world leader in protecting children against the highly contagious infection. This is the crux of a new report by Good Governance Africa, a research and advocacy organization. The 2015 Africa Survey is a comprehensive annual collection of social, political and economic indicators for the continent's 55 countries compiled from a wide range of sources. To unpack the contents of the survey, he has Kate van Egerk, a researcher at Good Governance Africa. Well, the survey is basically a huge compilation. It's about 700 pages of statistics on every kind of political, economic, social indicator that you can think of in Africa. It's basically a big book of statistics by which we can, in some ways, compare government performance across the different countries in Africa. So health, education, politics and governance. And the idea is that we have all these numbers that we can compare firstly over a period of time and secondly across the various countries in Africa. So it can be something that is useful to researchers, journalists, whoever, to kind of get their hands on the latest figures. Tell us about these countries, especially in Africa, that appear to be faring well in as far as the fight against measles is concerned. 
So many of the countries in Africa have very high vaccination rates against measles. While America has a rate of 91%, there's 16 countries in Africa that actually have a higher vaccination rate than America. And some of them are extremely high, like Burundi, 98%, Rwanda, 97%, Libya, 98%. How did these countries manage to achieve this milestone, especially given that there are regions on the continent that are volatile, some poor and hard to reach? Well, I think that, firstly, I mean, it's not all African countries that are doing that well. There's some countries like Central African Republic, which are still sitting at 25%. And even South Africa is only 66%, which is quite surprising in comparison to these other figures. So I think that in many of these areas that are doing well, it's because of a huge international effort. So UNICEF, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, all these kinds of organizations that have really come in and made this huge effort to get children vaccinated in conjunction with governments. I understand, though, that despite improved vaccination rates, the figure still stands at around 400 a day. Is this worrying in your view? Yeah, of course it's worrying. I mean, it's obviously not restricted to measles. You know, there's hundreds and hundreds of children dying every day of different diseases. And I think that what that's is indicative of is that while vaccination rates might be high because another reason why vaccination rates are quite high is because the measles vaccination is actually quite cheap. So just because you're able to vaccinate many children, that doesn't mean that the entire health system is still particularly in a great state. So there are many other reasons why there are children dying also other than not being vaccinated. Finally, do you think that Africa's success against measles shows that, you know, vaccination can be successful in reducing child mortality even in the poorest of communities? Definitely. I think the World Health Organization estimate is that it saved 15.6 million lives, this vaccine, between 2000 and 2013. I mean, that's a huge... Obviously, it's all relative, but it's definitely playing a big part in reducing child mortality. And that is Keith van Eckerk, a researcher at Good Governance Africa, talking to Elizabeth Ledecha. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The food crisis has escalated in South Sudan. A staggering 2.5 million people, about one-fifth of the population, remain at either crisis or emergency level food insecurity as fighting continues in the country. According to the latest Integrated Food Security Phase Classification Report released last week, this is more than double the number of people who were experiencing this level of food insecurity in December 2013 when the conflict broke out. The Food and Agricultural of the United Nations is warning that the situation is deteriorating and there is an urgent need to expand resilience efforts. FAO Centrum representative in the country, Serge Tissot, elaborates on the situation on the ground. 
food insecurity is not only concentrated in the northern states. Our food security uh, concerns the whole country. If we are taking two people in food security stress, we are speaking about 6.4 million people. It means half of the population in South Sudan is affected by a problem of food insecurity. And uh, if we are speaking in particular in the conflict-affected area, if I take the example of Bensu, over the last two months, 20,000 new arrivals have been registered in the IDP scam. It's very difficult huh, because everything has been disturbed. You have to know that majority of the displaced persons we are speaking about, 1.4 million people displaced internally inside South Sudan. Most of those people are living in host community. So the community has to feed more people than scheduled in a regular year. And usually when you are on a regular year, there is already a gap at the end of the dry season, waiting for the first harvest. This gap is usually between March and May. And this year, the gap will be quite huge, and it will affect a lot of people. And going back to the communities, what kind of food are people accessing? What can they access? This year, there is a major problem in food transfer because the traders are not traveling to those areas for security reasons. And in the area, the farmers are not growing as much as they can. We consider that only 40% of the land has been planted last season. What other kinds of factors are making it difficult for the farmers? Yeah, it's difficult for the farmer, of course, but also for the agropastoralist, because if the cattle uh, don't have enough grass, you don't have milk, even if they are not eating that much meat, People start now to kill some animal because they don't have other choice. We try to address this uh, problem also by providing also some uh, uh, vaccination to the cattle, but we are also providing some fishery equipment. In many areas, you have access to the river. But the main food, the crop food, we have to wait the next season. And the next harvest will only be in May, June. Uh, so we have still a few months to wait before to address the needs of the population. And according to the information released, there seems to be some potential in areas outside of the conflict zones to grow enough food to support the country. What needs to be done for that to happen? We try to improve the market, but this market is usually managed by traders, and the traders are not able to travel everywhere for security reasons. That is difficult to address. You mentioned a bit about the coordinated efforts. What are the next steps? Of course, uh, coordination remains something very important. FAO is a colleague of the food security cluster with WFP, and we are making coordination with the NGO, but also with the state ministry to distribute uh, the goods in time. We are now uh, in the... Uh, Procurement of everything, we will distribute something like 4,000 metric tons of seeds. We will distribute uh, uh, nearly 200,000 uh, fishing kits. And uh, something I would like also to mention is the fact that for the time being, we try to address the current crisis. 
But it's important to know that the crisis will not end with a peace agreement. We are moving to a protracted crisis. It will be a long-term crisis, and we will still need the support of the donor in a mid-term, because people will never be able to go back home after this crisis. There are still a lot of violence in the field, and it will take time to change the behavior of people, and it will take time to have everybody comfortable with livelihood. That was Serge Tissot, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations Interim Representative in South Sudan. He was talking to FAO Radio's Sandra Ferrari. Tributes poured in at the weekend following the death of celebrated South African author and outspoken critic of apartheid, Andre Brink. Brink died on his way back from Europe after receiving an honorary degree in Belgium. The 79-year-old became fatally ill during the flight. We'll take that story after the news headlines with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Spumalele. Good evening. Fighters from Nigeria's Islamic militant group Boko Haram have attacked a town across the border in Niger for the third time in several days. The renewed violence comes as legislators in Niger prepare to vote on a plan to send troops to a regional force seeking to dismantle the Islamic extremists. While parts of North America are experiencing the worst measles outbreak in 15 years, a new report has documented how Africa has increased immunization rates significantly, making the continent a world leader in protecting children against their highly contagious infection. And Lesotho's Prime Minister Tom Tabane is on his way to South Africa's capital, Pretoria, for urgent talks with the country's president, Jacob Zuma. Zuma is to mediate in talks between Tabane and leaders of coalition partners. Those are news headlines. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Tributes poured in at the weekend following the death of celebrated South African author and outspoken critic of apartheid, Andre Brink. Brink died on his way back from Europe after receiving an honorary degree in Belgium. The 79-year-old became fatally ill during the fight. During the flight, rather, Brink is best known for his 1979 novel, A Dry White Season, which focuses on the death in detention of a black activist and was adapted for film in 1989. Komuto Mopulani reports. The internationally renowned novelist suffered a stroke last year and was confined to a wheelchair. He made a significant impact on the literary world, writing in both English and Africans, and was honored for several contributions that highlighted the issues concerning apartheid South Africa. Three years ago, Brink and South African novelist laureate Nadine Godima led a campaign against proposals by the ruling African National Congress government to push through an information bill that would have seen whistleblowers and investigative journalists face prison for revealing government secrets. 
Association of South African Writers spokesperson Murakabe Raksiakwa says his passing is a huge loss to the literature industry. The passing away of uh, Andre Brank is, is a great loss um, to us in South Africa, but I think also to the literary world across uh, across the continent and elsewhere. He was a, a great writer. Uh, we take pride ourselves as the, the Writer Associates. Uh, we run something called the South African Literary Awards, and we bestowed uh, the Lifetime Achievement Award on him in 2006, uh, having given that to his other friends and comrades like Nadine Korima, James Matthews, Siposi Pamla. It's a great loss uh, to us not only for his writing, but he also had a strong point against the oppression and inequality of any nature. In the olden days, he was also a member of the Congress of South African Writers, through which he also helped run workshops to empower young um, writers. And uh, you remember also there was the, the Ritz 4 scandal at the University of the Free State. We were involved with him and uh, people like Nadine Korima in, um, you know, raising our voices against uh, that uh, type of uh, disrespect and, um, you know, almost torture to those elderly uh, women who were working there. Brink studied and lectured at some of South Africa's leading universities and he carried out his postgraduate research at Paris University of Sorbonne. This is what Kimran Kovadia, creative lecturer at the University of Cape Town, had to say. I didn't overlap with, with Andre as a colleague. Um, he had retired before I actually arrived in, in Cape Town. But I did know him as, I suppose, as a writing colleague. I know something about him. And, you know, obviously, like many South Africans, I've read him for for decades. I guess that's the basis of any acquaintance I have with him. Kovadia says he will forever be remembered for his contributions. His kind of friction with the state, you know, his willingness to challenge censorship prohibitions around the representation of sexuality, around interracial relationships, around politics. Uh, And I think his career, the early part of his career was defined by that kind of rebellion, which I think he found a very close analog of in in France or um, found a very sympathetic version of in France as well. Um, He somehow went from Pontchefstroom to the Sorbonne, and I think that's one of the stranger juxtapositions that any South African writer has had. And when he came back from from Paris, I think he brought a lot of rethinking with him. And I think he always called France his second home, maybe his first home. Some of his acknowledgements include being awarded for the Commonwealth Writers' Prize and being awarded in Sweden for his contribution to human rights with the Manismanian Award for Human Rights. For Channel Africa, I'm Komotsamupulane in Johannesburg. 17.34 Central African Time. This is Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Pamela Lezondi. More than 100 scientists as well as secondary school students and pupils from across Africa are in Zambia for the 2014 DSTV Uteleset Awards presentation taking place in Lusaka tomorrow. The annual competition encourages students to write an essay or design a poster on the benefits of satellite technology on the continent. Hilda Akekelo reports. Mount Choice Zambia Public Relations Manager Mui Kamalinda told journalists that nine judges, among them Italian astronaut Paolo Naspali, are tasked with the responsibility of deciding the 2014 winners. The competition theme was Imagine You Are a Satellite. 
orbiting high above your own country or even above your home or school. Astronaut Nespoli, who arrived in Livingston yesterday, first traveled into space aboard the Space Shuttle Discovery in 2007 as a mission specialist. Three years later, in 2010, he again traveled into space aboard the Soyuz TMA-20 spacecraft as an expedition flight engineer. Ms. Melinda said, as Zambia, it is a great honor for the country to host such a high-profile scientist and expressed hope that young learners will be encouraged, especially after having an interaction with him. This is a huge corporate social responsibility program for us. Mouthchoice in Zambia sponsors over 300 schools. We are now trying to impress on children to get very interested in science. Discover that there's a big gap in Africa. Children don't want to take up sciences, maybe because they think they are challenging mathematics, this and that. So bringing big people, astronauts like Paolo, come and show the kids that this is possible. You can be an astronaut. So he's going to have an interaction with them in Osaka on the 11th. That's the day that he will be leaving. But in the morning, he was going to talk to over 200 school children from within Lusaka. He could only do Lusaka because of the short time. After noting that many students on the continent were shying away from science subjects, Mount Choice Africa and UTELSAT Communications initiated an annual Pan-African Student Competition called DSTV UTELSAT Star Awards in 2010. Ms. Amalinda says the idea is to arouse innovative thinking among secondary school students and create awareness of how science and technology can be applied to everyday life. He says since its inception, the competition has attracted more than 3,000 participants, thereby invigorating a passion for science across the continent. In 2013, a 17-year-old grade 12 Zambian student won the essay award while the poster award was taken by Ghanaian Lloyd Osei Balfour. The awards include a trip for two to Utelsat Station and watch a rocket launch in Paris, France. The overall winners who are also provided with multi-choice resource center equipment and a free access to the DSTV education bouquet. Reporting for Channel Africa, from Livingston in Zambia, I'm Hilda Kekelwa. A multi-continental campaign endorsed by 260 civil society organizations, trade unions and farmers groups from around the world is demanding an end to the World Bank's project, projects and benchmark agriculture business. Anundra Mittal, executive director of the Oakland Institute in the United States of America, says this practice continues to impoverish communities in the developing countries through programs such as foreign direct investment. She's been speaking to Wandile Kalipa. Well, around the world we are seeing a phenomena where in developing countries, whether it is in Asia or Africa, Latin America, we are seeing people's resources that they depend on for their livelihoods, land, water. They are being grabbed by foreign corporations in the name of bringing development in the, through foreign direct investment. And what we have realized after many years of doing research in different parts of the world, that this whole idea of foreign direct investment will lead to development is being pushed and promoted by international financial institutions, by the World Bank. 
And one way they do it is through their rankings. They rank countries, what they are like to do business with, called doing business rankings. And when you look at the doing business rankings, it is really a race to the bottom. So a country which gives away, you know, asking for environmental impact assessments of foreign investors, or if there's a country which makes acquiring land very easy, they get a good ranking. Whereas if a country says you really need to consult with the local communities, you need to spend time and make sure that the free prior informed consent has been obtained, they would get a bad ranking. And that is why over 260 groups from around the world, these are farmer organizations, these are trade unions, these are civil society groups, that are asking that it is our land, it is our business, and the World Bank should stop doing these rankings. What impact has this had on the countries that have not been benchmarked? Well, the countries that, say, refuse to be benchmarked, what it would mean is that they would get no investment. They would get no credit. So that is why the countries have been pushed to join this race. Everyone is willing to lower their social, economic, their environmental you know, standards so the World Bank can rate them high and they can attract foreign investors. And now the respective governments in the respective countries where these uh, rankings are taking place, who is benefiting? Is it the people or the governments? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, if you look at some of the other ways rankings are done, for instance, if a country gets rid of, you know, they say they will not be asking for profit taxes for the next 10 to 30 years, or they would not, you know, ask for import duties, they lose a lot of revenue. So national economies are hurting. The best winners in this whole scenario are the multinational corporations, foreign companies, who are looking at third world countries as a place for securing their resources and so they are the winners. There are of course political elites in our countries and developing countries where you will find are happy to see this happen. But overall the losers are the local communities and the national economies because you're seeing a drain of resources from third world countries whereas nothing is coming back to the national economy or the countries or the communities. This benchmarking of agriculture by the World Bank, how is it impacting on the developing countries in particular, looking at the acquiring of land, as you mentioned? I'm really glad you asked this, because so far I just mentioned that the World Bank does a ranking called Doing Business Ranking. Now, this Doing Business Ranking, for all the problems it has that I just mentioned, it was reviewed in 2013, there was an internal review which said to the World Bank president that these rankings are not helping the bank accomplish its mandate, which is to end poverty. So instead of ending those doing business rankings, sadly enough, thanks to the G8 and the Gates Foundation, the bank was told to develop indicators for agriculture. So last year, this process started out, it was called benchmarking the business of agriculture. Because of the pressure from the campaign, Our Land, Our Business, They are now calling it enabling the business of agriculture. But the truth is, it is just marking countries what they are like to do business with in agriculture. Are you willing to open up your countries to foreign pesticides, chemical companies coming in? Are you open to companies such as Monsanto with the GMO seeds coming in? So this is really an effort, especially in Africa, to open the seed and fertilizer market. 
And these are the indicators that are being developed. What's been the response of the World Bank to the campaign? Well, you know, it is very interesting. We launched the campaign last year. We had a conversation with, uh, you know, people who are behind, you know, coming up with these indicators at the World Bank. When they first heard about that, our criticisms around their markings, benchmarking, we found a lot of material disappear and be removed from their website. Soon after, we heard that it was no longer called benchmarking. It was called enabling the business of agriculture. When we challenged them that you come up with policies with no consultation with the smallholder farmers, with the people who are impacted, they had a consultation. They had a consultation in London, and they gave seven days' notice for that consultation. I mean, you and I both know if you are coming from Africa, first of all, for a farmer in Africa or a civil society group to manage resources, to buy a ticket to London, to arrange for a visa is almost impossible. So they're doing basically lip service. They're trying to act that they're doing consultation, but nothing has really changed. And that is why we are now putting pressure on the executive directors, such as the U.S. executive director of the World Bank, that it is time that the bank stops benchmarking. We have a very clear demand. We want them to stop doing business rankings. That was Anurada Mittal, Executive Director for the Oakland Institute in the United States of America. On the line from California, she was talking to Wandile Kalipa. 17.44 Central African Time, right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And Wissani Matebula is in the studio with your economic news. Good evening, thanks, Sir Pumelele. British bank HSBC admitted failings by its Swiss subsidiary in response to the media reports that it has helped wealthy customers dodge taxes and conceal millions of dollars of assets. The bank says its uh, Swiss arm has not been fully integrated into HSBC after its purchase in 1999, allowing lower standards of compliance and uh, due diligence to persist. Media reports allege that HSBC Swiss Bank routinely allowed their clients to withdraw bricks of cash often in foreign currencies. The bank also marketed their schemes which were likely to enable wealthy clients to avoid European taxes and colluded with some of the clients to conceal undeclared amounts from domestic tax authorities. South African economist Davide Wood says the solution to the current power crisis in the Southern African nation is to hike the electricity prices. This comes as South Africa's power utility, ESCOM, has been struggling to generate enough power to meet the demand. South Africans have, uh, for six consecutive days, experiencing power cuts as ESCOM struggles with a series of problems, including unplanned outages due to technical faults, among other things. ESCOM has also shut a 930-megawatt unit at its Kuberg nuclear power station in the Western Cape province for three months to perform regular maintenance. Ruot explains. And the answer to the electricity questions are exactly the same as for any other product. I think a first step, and I know this is going to be very painful, and I know people are probably going to disagree with me, but as a first step, we need to get a supply and demand closer to each other. And the easiest way of doing that in the short term is by increasing the price of electricity. 
Meanwhile, Africa's biggest uh, grocer, Shaw Price, has called on all food companies to pass on savings to consumers and cut prices. Shaw Price has cited four consecutive decreases in the price of petrol as the reason. The retailer says major retailers should collude and bring down prices. Y.T. Basson is CEO of Shaw Price. I, I can just make a general call and say, please, retailers, drop your price ever, wherever you can. Our food suppliers, and they, they're the ones that really could, what we say is that if we see a petrol price reduction, everybody must try and, and bring it down because the economy at the moment really needs a little bit of a flame to start up. Otherwise, our job creation just goes to the dogs. Mauritius' estimated sugar production for 2014 fell 4% compared to the forecast. This according to the island's Chamber of Agriculture, blaming worker strike and heavy rains for disrupting the harvest. Sugar is a centuries-old pillar of Mauritius' economy. It accounts for roughly 1.2% of the Indian Ocean State's $10 billion GDP. Christine CPC reports. The Indian Ocean Islands 2014 sugar output is estimated to come in at 400,000 tons last year from a previous forecast of 415,000 tons. The harvest season, which typically extends from June to December, was affected when around 4,000 sugar workers stopped work last November, demanding more pay and then further disrupted by heavy rains in the first weeks of January. Mauritius sugar producers also saw profits fall last year after global prices for the sweetener dipped due to a huge overhang of stocks after four straight years of surpluses. And the Naira has opened at record lows today after Nigeria delayed its presidential election by six weeks, citing security concerns due to an Islamist insurgency in the north. The Electoral Commission's decision to postpone the polls have added to the political uncertainty, which along with a slump in oil prices has put intense pressure on the Naira since last year. A general look at your indicators financially, the U.S. dollar at 11.48, South African rands at 9.33, Botswana Pulas and 6.52, Zambian Quatches. Also trading at 0.652, the British pound and 0.88 against the euro. We're moving on now to commodities, uh, gold $1,236, platinum $1,220, a fine ounce, Brent crude oil is at $57.97 per barrel. And that's your economics news for now. Thank you very much, Usani. It's time for Sports News with Figile Lengwati. Now, sports update. This hour, we're kicking off with football news. The Egyptian Football Association announced the indefinite suspension of all football activity after at least over 20 people were killed in a deadly encounter involving football fans and security forces on Sunday night. The Football Association made the announcement in a statement early on Monday, and the suspension includes all divisions of the football league. It came after the Egyptian cabinet announced the indefinite suspension of the Egyptian Premier League. The deadly incident took place outside a football stadium in Cairo ahead of the game between Zamalek and NP clubs. 
and South Africa's national under-17 boys team has arrived safely in Niamey in Niger after an arduous journey which took them through the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa. The national under-17 team is in Niger for the upcoming 2015 African Youth Championship, which will be played from the 15th to the f- of February to the 1st of March. On arrival in Yamei, the team was greeted by some extremely hot weather conditions in the primarily arid country, which is currently in the middle of its hottest month of the year. And Nigeria Football Federation, the NFF Secretary General Musa Amadou says they are confident that the upcoming 2015 African Youth Championship in Niger will not experience problems. This after reports have been claiming that there could be security breaches that could see po- that could pose danger to the participants. The national under-17 African Youth Championships will be played from the 15th of February to the 1st of March. Our Nigerian correspondent Tony Ubani reports. Some cable news uh, networks have been carrying out uh, some stories, you know, saying that the surrounding borders of Niger, you know, have come under attack, thereby creating panic among the natives, but the Nigeria Football Federation Secretary General Musa Amado said that uh, the Confederation of African Football has not sent any formal information on the security situation in the Republic of Niger. He, however, admitted that Niger has been facing some security challenges, saying that the situation would not affect the African Youth Championship. In rugby news, Springbok and Stormer's eighth man, Dwayne Fermielen, was the biggest winner at the South African Rugby Awards, which were held last night at Voda World in Midland, north of Johannesburg. Fermilan won the awards of South African Rugby Player of the Year, Players Player of the Year, and the Super Rugby Player of the Year. An emotional Fermilan says, Last year was a good year for him, especially having stayed injury-free and enjoying the backing of management from both the Stormers and the Springboks. It's just, it's been a... An amazing year. I think 2014 was a was a great year. There was a lot of ups and downs. Um, I think the best part for for me was just to stay injury free. So. And in athletics, Africa and national short put champion Orazio Cremona believes that he can make the top six at the IAAF World Championships to be held in Beijing from the 22nd of August to the 30th this year. The championship will be held at the Beijing National Stadium, the Bird's Nest, which hosted the 2008 Summer Olympics. Cremona is planning on spending two months in Europe and then returning home to fine-tune his training before leaving for World Championships. Cremona says it is better to complete his preparation at home and is hopeful that he will be in the South African contingent after meeting the IAAF qualifying standards. I'm planning to go in June. I want to go for at least a month and a half and then come back, or at least I want to go for two months. And I know uh, World Champs is at the end of August, so I'd like to come back for those four weeks before World Champs. I just want to settle, have my mind set here with my coaches and, and train properly, you know, be with the family and, and be settled. Because in Europe, it's good, you can train in the heat, but, you know, you're always all over the place, you know, you're in a strange place all the time. So I really, really, really want to do well at Worlds this year. I want to make a top five, maybe top six. And finally, the Kenya national women's hockey team players are today on Iran's preparing for their Tuesday trip to Montevideo, Uruguay, for the second round of the World Hockey League, which will involve eight countries. The team held its final training session yesterday ahead of the trip to the South American nation. Francis Mutegi reports. 
The traveling team was named on Sunday with a journey to the South American nation set for Tuesday night. Kenya qualified for the second round of the World Hockey League after winning the first leg played in Nairobi, Kenya. There were only three countries represented in that tournament, Kenya, Ghana and Tanzania. Kenya beat Ghana 1-0 and Tanzania 22-0. In the second round, they will face off with Azerbaijan, Dominican Republic, France, Italy, Mexico, Trinidad and Tobago and hosts Uruguay. The Kenyan side believes they have what it takes to get one of the top four spots to progress to round three from where the tickets for the Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro next year will be earned. That's your sport news this hour. This is Africa Digest. As we recap our top stories this hour, member states of the Lake Chad Basin Commission agreed to deploy a force to combat Boko Haram. Tributes pour in following the death of celebrated South African author Andre Brink. In economics, South African economist David Ruud says the solution to the current power crisis is to hike the electricity price. And in sports, Egypt is mourning the death of football fans. That wraps up Africa Digest for today. From myself, Pumela Lezondi, producer Luanda Mawome, technical producer Sfiso Mashiko, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you very much for listening. For comments, you can send us emails. We're on info at channelafrica.org. Info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS on plus 27823325905. Plus 27823325905. Taking us to the top of the hour is Abenguni by Tandiswamazwai.